HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills, and also by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farms raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com and SpringerMountainFarms.com. Welcome back to Heritage Radio Network. We are broadcasting live from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. I want to say thanks again to the festival for having us here in these beautiful teepees and also to our sponsors Springer Mountain Farms and Big Green Egg. Uh, Do check out uh, right directly behind me opposite this teepee wall. uh, They're doing some chicken sausage demos on the Big Green Egg and we're doing a silent auction for a Big Green Egg Mini Max and uh, you can also win a starter kit with that. So please do check that out and bid to support Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported nonprofit, and you can see our entire schedule for Charleston at heritageradionetwork.org slash Charleston. I'm your host, Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of the network, and I have a very special guest joining us right now, Sarah Moulton. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Katie. Sarah is really needs no introduction. Longtime food personality, chef, author, radio, and TV personality. She's been the on-air editor, food editor for Good Morning America. She's worked as the chef of the executive dining room at Gourmet. She is a well-known star on the Food Network. And now she's, uh, since 2008, been hosting Sarah's Weeknight Meals on American Public Television. And she recently joined as the co-host of Milk Street Radio. So you are uh, extremely prolific in the food media world, and you had a new book come out last year. Tell us a little bit about your book. Well, I'm very proud of it. I think it's my best book. It's the fourth, fourth book. It's called Home Cooking 101, How to Make Everything Taste Better. I had that second line because I thought that would grab people. They'd be like, oh, I'd like to know how to do that. Uh-huh. But at any rate, it's like um, a primer for home cooks, um, you know, just really how to, how to cook, but not with all that chefly stuff. I'm not to say that there aren't some chefly things in there, but more targeted, firmly targeted on the home cook. Mm-hmm. So it's 150 recipes, 200 photos, lots of how-tos, and it's a very, very personal book. So everything I say is based on my years as being a chef and doing all the things we just talked about, plus being very targeted on the home cook. So thinking about how does anybody get dinner on the table during the work week? Mm -hmm. What are all the little tips and tricks? Can you tell us about uh, maybe a recipe from that book that's extremely personal for you or um, a story that went into the creation of that book? Wow, that's really interesting. Um, 
Well, all of the recipes are illustrate something. So if you cooked your way through the book, you'd learn a lot. But I think what's most interesting to me or what's most personal is the first chapter, which is the top 10 things you need to know to become a really good cook. Mm-hmm. It starts with getting to know your stove because we all have different stoves and they all behave differently and you just have to get used to it. And then getting a really good knife and making sure it's a 10-inch, not an 8-inch. I'm on a huge campaign for that because yeah. the sweet spot on a 10-inch is that much larger than the sweet spot on an 8-inch. And I go on to talk about salt, which is hands down the most important ingredient, how to balance flavors. So if something's too sweet, salty, um, spicy, sugary, how do you do, what do you do with that? How to build umami, how to organize your time to get dinner on the table during the work week, um, and much more. But that chapter, the first chapter, if you only read that one, you know, that's sort of a lot for me. I try to do a lot. So there's a primer on dried beans and how to cook them and on grains and how to cook them and how to make a vinaigrette, what to do with herbs. Mm-hmm. There's, it's, it's a very dense book. You know, when I say that, I'm afraid people's heads are going to clunk on the counter like, oh no, there's too much reading. But I think <laughs> it's good. I think it's entertaining. My husband, who's sitting right there, uh, is a writer. So I write the text. He translates it into English. I tell him to put my voice back in it, and then we have a book. Yeah. And um, I think it's... I'm really, really proud of it, I have to say. So I imagine that you have a pretty busy schedule right now making two shows, promoting the book. I'm wondering if there's anything coming up that you can tell us about or if that is taking up all of your time right now. Well, actually, what keeps me even busier is uh, a weekly Associated Press column, which I've been doing since 2012. Mm-hmm. And it was initially a healthy column, which is weird, because that's <laughs> not my you know, thing. But I, I cook healthy mostly. But it's now evolved into it's a column called Kitchen Wise. And it's a recipe once a week, which teaches a new technique, plus 300 words. And now I have to do the photography. Wow. And that is what's sort of, on the one hand, a fun challenge, and the other hand, putting me over the edge. So I do that every week, and I also do a column for the Washington Post called Sunday Supper, which is sort of the total reverse from when I did the healthy plate because it's pretty, you know, comfort foodie and fattening and (laughs) more complicated, not weeknight mealy. Uh But at any rate, that keeps me very busy. Plus, I work with this wonderful little cookware company called Chantal, and uh, they sponsored my book tour last mm-hmm. year, thank God, because publishers don't no longer pop, you know, do that. And so I ended up in about 43 different places last year, including Minot, North Dakota, um, and other you know, interesting places. It was fun. And um, we're continuing, so I'm going to be doing some more of that. Great. You also have a speech coming up on leadership lessons from Julia's Kitchen. Uh, can we get a sneak preview about that? Oh, boy. You, you've got me before I've organized the speech. <laughs> it's for a human resources organization. And um, I went out to dinner with them in the fall. I was in their neck of the woods. They're in, um, yeah, I'm going to be in Williamsburg. West right. Ver- not, not the Brooklyn one that we, <laughs> we know and love, right? <laughs> but the uh, West Virginia one. Cool. Uh, Virginia one, excuse me. Um, and uh, I had dinner with these guys and gals, and I started talking about Julia because I'd just done a speech actually the year before at the Smithsonian, which now has this wonderful food program and is giving out an award every year, uh, a Julia Child Award. And the first year was Jacques Pepin. And the second year was um, our man from 
Chicago. You know, thank you, Rick Bayless. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but anyway, they asked me the first year to give a speech about Julia and what I learned from her. And, and they said, I think they said something ridiculous, like you have five minutes. And I was like, I don't think so. Uh, so I, I, I think I did it in 15. But um, so, I mean, in a nutshell, uh, well, there's no nutshell with Julia, but she was, uh, <laughs> she taught me that you never stop learning. Um, that uh, you should always have at least one job. I blame Julia for why I've always had at least three jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, she certainly taught me how to smile, um, which she was not a ph- phony woman. She did not have a phony bone in her body. But one time, very early on when I was on the Food Network, she came on my show. Of course, I was a nervous wreck. And at the end of the whole thing, the Food Network sent a photographer to take a picture of the two of us. I was only two months in. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm the only person who learned on the job at the Food Network because it was the early days. They had no money to train anybody. And after we'd, we'd done the show, she puts, they come out to shoot us. She puts her big arm around me and she says, Come on, dearie, just say champagne. <laughs> and I thought, as with a big smile, that nobody can see a big smile on radio, although you can hear it, I thought, Wow. If she tells me to smile like that, I am going to smile. And so I started smiling a lot. And whenever I had guests on, I ended up doing almost, I did 1,500 shows on the Food Network. And I probably had about 500 guests, although many of those were repeats. And something I would always tell them before we started, because a lot of them were green. Back then, they were green. We're talking about 96, you know, through 2005. The last thing I would say before we went on air is smile constantly and for no particular reason. And it works. And Rachel Ray says that I taught her how to smile. So there you go. Wow. So that was another thing. But Julia also taught me that it's okay to make mistakes. Um both in your own kitchen and also on air Mm -hmm. because we all make mistakes and you just fix them. There's almost nothing you can't fix. And last but not least, and there's more, there were 10. I have to dig them up for the speech next week or, yes, next week. Um, Never apologize, never explain. So when you have somebody over for dinner, Mm -hmm. don't tell them what you did wrong. We all have a habit of saying, oh, you know, I should have added acid. I didn't reduce it. It's boring. I don't know. It should have been crunchier. I'm sorry it's overcooked. Don't do that because everybody's so glad that you cooked and they didn't. So just don't ruin their evening. So those are just a few little nuggets, but I should have brushed up before you asked me that question. Oh, no, that was amazing. Well, I think that last part sounds a lot like the advice of how to take a compliment, which is something that a lot of people struggle that's with. That's very interesting. Uh, yes. But, uh, yeah, I love hearing that about Julia. She was one of the funniest people. Did you ever meet her? No. Because she met a lot of people. I mean, yeah. she wasn't shy. Um, she was really, hands down, one of the funniest people I ever met because she was so honest. And refreshingly honest, but she had good manners. Mm -hmm. I mean, she wouldn't be rude. But if she thought something was ridiculous, she'd sort of let you know. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, So you are known for having a commitment to empowering women both in and out of the kitchen. You just named some really influential women in the food media space, and you are one as well. What kind of impact does the recent wave of activism like the Women's March have on you? And do you have any tips for women in the culinary field in 2017? Well, the reason I care so much is I grew up, you know, I went to college starting in the 70s, but it was still sort of the 60s. We felt it. Mm -hmm. I went to the University of Michigan. 
and, you know, uh, was impacted heavily by feminism, what was going on, the war of Vietnam, the whole nine yards. And um, then I went into the food industry after that. I went to the Culinary Institute. And, you know, when we, back then, so I went in 19, I graduated in 77. So when, when I went there, it was all 18-year-old guys, and they were all blue-collar, and they were all chefs, and they were all really cute. But they told us women, and we were in the minority, you know, the, the classic you know, women don't belong in this industry. You can't heat the, stand the heat. You can't take the pressure. You can't lift the pots. Well, that, to me, was catnip. I'm like, I am going to show you. So I just started then making it my mission, and mostly by just doing it. Mm-hmm. No, don't get in arguments. Just do a good job. Mm-hmm. And that has really stood me in good stead. You know, I just work hard. I really, I always did. And um, I think that's what you've got to do. You can't take the bait. You just keep doing your good job. And you try to find jobs. It's so much better than it was. When I first moved to New York in 81, I couldn't get a job. I wanted to work at a really great restaurant. None of them would hire me because they were all run by French men or European men. Now it's much better. Still not best. The women in New York, there's a lot of women chefs, and I'm friends with a lot of them. Um, they are finally getting restaurants. They're finally getting a little bit of press, but not the same press that the guys are mm-hmm. and not the same offers to open up restaurants. But at any rate, also when I moved to New York in 81, we started this group called the New York Women's Culinary Alliance. And it was based on a group that we started in Boston with Julia called the Boston Women's Culinary Guild. Mm-hmm. It's now called the New England Culinary Guild, and they took in boys. I don't know what they were thinking. But at any rate, what we decided was men have all these, you know, boys groups, you know, men's clubs, and women don't. So that's why we formed the group in Boston. When I moved to New York and I came across all these problems, I was like, we need to do this here. So we did, and it's still going strong after all these years. We formed it in 82. I'm looking at the husband because he knows all these dates. Uh, so we did it, and, and it's still going great. And there's other wonderful groups. There's Les Dom Descoffiers nationally, and that is a wonderful group also. I'm a member of both. And I just think it's really important, but advice I give to women is just go in and do a good job. And if you're green and, and you don't want to start with a nasty boss, and, and women can be nasty bosses too, do your homework before you get go get the job. Check with people who work there or find people who know people who work there and find out what the reputation of the chef is. And if all else fails, just go to California because everything is better there for women chefs. Wow. So don't take the bait and make sure you're getting a great placement before your first job. Right. You're starting out. Absolutely. And just work hard and you will rise. Wow. Yeah. So you have been a really experienced food media personality but also a chef and we have seen in the last few years the landscape of how we communicate about food change dramatically. And as you mentioned now, you're taking your own photos for your column. So you are needing to branch out and learn about food styling and photography and all these other elements beyond already being a chef and a writer. How do you think that the evolution of technology that we're seeing and social media might be changing the way that we appreciate food and chefs? Yeah, I mean, it's huge. However, the interesting thing is everything you just said that I did before I started doing my own photography. I always did food styling because I worked at Gourmet and Mm -hmm. then I worked with Julia. and I actually did my own food app, but I never made any money back on it, so it fizzled. Although I was very proud of it. But... um, now you almost you don't need to do you don't need to go to cooking school mm-hmm. you don't need to know anything about photography you don't need to be a writer 
actually some of the biggest stars have done none of those things, and they are yet they are big stars, bloggers, all of that. So it's sort of optional. You yeah. know, you just have to be ambitious. And uh, you can teach. What's great about digital cameras is you can end up shooting beautiful photography. Mm-hmm. And you can create a whole world for yourself online and become famous and sell books. And those are the new stars. What do you think that means for the future of dining out? I think chefs are still serious. That's a whole different ball game. Mm-hmm. You can't go in and pretend you're a chef. <laughs> and I'm not saying these people are pretending they're experts. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that some of us who walked five miles to school and put our time in are, you know, like photographers and food stylists also, it's a little bit upsetting that these people who didn't spend any time working in the trenches are suddenly the big new stars. However, some of them are great, so I can't dismiss the whole group. Um, but I think chefs are still really working hard, yeah. you know, and um, they're I have nothing bad to say about them. Hey, if you want to work 80 hours a week and give up your life to give me good food, I applaud you. Cheers to that. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sarah, for so much good advice. At this point, I'd love to give you the chance to give big ups or a big shout out to an organization or somebody that you know in the food space who's doing great work that you want to recognize on air. Can I mention... Two in the food space and one in the non-food space? I think we can allow it. Okay. In the food space, Share Our Strength is, I just think, enormously wonderful. And since we're both city folks, I love um, City Harvest. I think it's great what they do. Wonderful stuff. But my own personal favorite charity, which has nothing to do with food, is the Fresh Air Fund. Uh, which brings, I think it's just New York-based, unfortunately. I could be wrong, but brings inner-city kids to the country with sponsor families or to camps. And I think that's such an important experience. Mm -hmm. So I give money to them every year. And I believe they're looking for volunteers right now. So if you're (laughs) listening and you live in a beautiful place in the country and you're interested in hosting some city kids in the summertime, you should check them out as well. Where can our listeners find you on social media? Well, SarahMolton.com, on Instagram, at Sarah Moulton. I'm also on Twitter, which is, would that also be at Sarah Moulton? Maybe, I'm terrible. I never remember because it's all, like, automatic. Maybe it's Sarah S. Moulton on, but you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn and my website. And my show is Sarah Moulton, uh, Sarah's Weeknight Meals. And how you find where it airs in your neck of the woods is you go to my website, sarahmolton.com, click Sarah's Weeknight Meals. It will take you to a place where you put in your zip code and your provider, whether it's Comcast or Time Warner, and then you will find out where my show airs in your neck of the woods. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a privilege to have you on with us today. Enjoy the rest of your time at the festival. How can I not? Thank you. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Once again, you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're going to take a short break, and we will be right back with more live coverage from Charleston Wine and Food. Thanks for being with us. This episode is brought to you by Big Green Egg, the world's largest producer of ceramic charcoal grills. In business since 1974, they've transformed ancient cooking vessels into modern-day masterpieces. Today, they sell seven sizes of the egg, as well as hundreds of accessories designed to make your cooking fun, entertaining, and delicious. Often copied, but never equaled, the Big Green Egg is the ultimate cooking experience. Learn more at BigGreenEgg.com. This episode is also brought to you by Springer Mountain Farms, over 300 family farmers raising birds in Georgia's Blue Ridge Mountains. Many of them are second and even third generation 
They're committed to doing things the right way. Springer was one of the first poultry companies to forego the use of antibiotics, and they've embraced other humane practices, too. In fact, they were the first poultry company to earn the American Humane Association seal of approval. Learn more at springermountainfarms.com.